Oh, thanks for that. If you could leave your Bibles open to Isaiah 42 and follow the text, that would be great. Uh, that was a great uh, summary, I think, of uh, <laughs> Jared's uh, time here at Mafra. We didn't humanly plan to be here on the Abdu's farewell service or Thanksgiving service, but it's really nice that we are. Pip and I were reflecting on our experience of church and uh, in my whole life my favourite experience of church was the few years here at Mafra prior to uh, going to Ethiopia. So let, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, that these are your words. We pray that you would cause us to take them to heart and uh, give us grace to understand them and to, to seek out your servant and not idols. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, I uh, really enjoy the website uh, despair.com. Uh, their claim being that they're modifying popular motivational phrases to make them more realistic. Uh, one that's particularly pertinent to, to today's passage, which currently hangs in my office, has a picture of a massive stream of lava boiling over a bitumen road for hundreds of metres, and the caption reads... Some things cannot be overcome with more determination and a positive attitude. And today we see that in is such is the human heart's inclination uh, to interpret the world through a wrong understanding, an idolatrous understanding of reality, that even God's people get drawn into it and end up denying God's word. Some human problems are beyond self-help therapy. And so God will say to us today, Behold my servant. Now Isaiah 40 to 55 is actually quite a complex part of the Bible to grasp, largely because people don't go to much effort to understand the context. So we do need to understand the context well, and the essential background to what's going on in these chapters is the exile of the southern kingdom of Israel to Babylon in 536 BC. Now, as you could imagine, I'm sure you're familiar with that, at least in broad terms, but this exile to Babylon caused a massive crisis of faith uh, for Judah and the people of Jerusalem. See, in the face of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the removal of God's people from the promised land and the decimation of the house of David, how can Yahweh's purposes to rule the world through the Davidic king and bring blessing to the world through Abraham's offspring be taken seriously? It seems to be in tatters. It seems that God's word has in fact failed. One of the problems facing Israel on top of this is the argument that the reason this happened is that the gods of Babylon are more powerful and wise than Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
See, in a war, the best team wins. The most powerful team wins. Otherwise, how could Israel end up in Babylonian exile? In many people's minds, that is the only reasonable explanation. That Yahweh lacks power and faithfulness and wisdom and he's not the God that he claimed to be. He may have achieved the exodus from Egypt, but that was many centuries ago. He's had it now, that's history. So Isaiah 40 to 55 is written for the benefit of those in Babylonian exile to demonstrate why the exile happened and to present the way forward for these people. Because with Yahweh there's always a way forward. And this way forward is that there will be a new exodus from their slavery. In the original exodus, Yahweh saved Israel from Egypt through the wilderness and the Red Sea to the promised land. The claim of these chapters is he's going to do it again. And the way he's going to do it is by raising up a king from the Medes and Persians called Cyrus. And Cyrus, though he is a pagan, Yahweh calls him my Messiah and my shepherd, which Israel find offensive. Now the ideology of the Persians was that they would return exiled people to their homeland, let them worship their own gods... And in theory, this would generate a certain loyalty and create stability in the empire. Now, this, of course, all happened under the sovereign hand of God so that he would preserve a remnant of Abraham's seed who would return to the land. But the the deeper question we're left with and that Isaiah is concerned to address is did the exile change anything? Are Israel fundamentally changed by their covenant uh, discipline of exile? Will this promise of a glorious second exodus elicit a faithful response from the people? So at one level, Cyrus the Persian will bring about the new exodus in the sense that he will deliver them from Babylon and return them to the land. But is that enough? Is that addressing the main problem? The main problem is that Israel as God's servant... According to these chapters, which you'll see in the next talk, the problem is they're still dumb, blind and deaf. They're still committed to human wisdom and they're unbelieving in Yahweh's word. And for this problem or slavery, someone much more than Cyrus is needed. 
And what we find in Isaiah 40 to 55 is that Yahweh expects his word to continue to be taken very seriously. It hasn't failed. The main argument in this passage for that is that he's already told Israel over decades that the, by the prophets that their current circumstances are exactly what would happen. Whereas the so-called gods of other nations have done no such thing. So let's just quickly revisit a couple of verses from last talk. So if you look again at Isaiah 41, 23 to 24, it says this, and this is Yahweh asking the gods of the nations to do something. It says, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm that we, we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So you can see what God's doing here. He's saying to the gods of the so-called gods of the other nations, do something, predict something. And even modern unbelievers cannot appeal to randomness as the answer because randomness of this nature is not predictable by definition. Yahweh speaks and it comes about. So we have this almost hopeless situation of idols or gods of the human imagination And Israel as God's servant have been drawn into this idolatry and have failed to interpret their situation rightly according to God's words already spoken by the prophets. Now, chapter 42, verses 1 to 9, we have this extraordinary contrast. We are told straight away now, behold... Take notice, against this background of superficiality, human fickleness and foolishness, behold my servant. And this can get confusing because the idea of servant of Yahweh is used different ways in Isaiah 40 to 55. So back in verse 8 of chapter 41, Israel is described as the servant of Yahweh. The one who serves and represents him to the nations. The one who reflects his glory to those around them. But the problem is, as we go through these chapters, is that Israel is a blind, deaf, dismayed and fearful servant. Basically a failed servant who cannot achieve God's intentions. But what we see in these important verses 1 to 4 is that someone else called the servant of Yahweh is going to enter this whole situation and tear down these misconceptions of Yahweh and his purposes 
and demonstrate in the process that false gods are exactly that. False and unable to do anything. That idolatrous interpretations of the world don't work. So look at the nature of this as yet unknown servant. And remember this, this is not talking about Jesus yet. This is a job description of someone that we need because Israel is a failed servant. The figure, this figure at this point in time is ambiguous. He simply comes as someone who will achieve God's purposes in the face of the failure of national Israel, while in a sense being the ultimate remnant of Israel. He possesses God's spirit and someone in whom God delights. Verse 1. Let's pause and consider that. There is one in whom the very inner being of God finds delight. And outrageously, he will bring justice to the nations. I'm sure you're, those old enough remember back in the 90s, Bob Hawke claimed that he was going to reduce child poverty. In fact, eliminate it. And everyone laughed. See, claiming to be able to bring justice to the nations, where are you going to start? How are you going to do it? This is not something people just put on their to-do list for the day or for the decade for that matter. This is the job of a king who establishes an ordered just society where all wrongdoing is exposed and dealt with, something that has eluded humanity completely. And this servant is going to somehow do it. Even at our best, our systems are only reasonable. We live in Australia in unprecedented times of peace and prosperity. But there are still inequities, biases, corruption. No one I know is particularly excited about this election (laughs) because what a choice. (laughs) But But let alone if we start thinking about all the monumental failures... Uh, such as Stalin killing 20 million people to implement a system that will usher in a new humanity, which spectacularly didn't. Whatever organisational structures human history has put in place to manage people justly, to distribute wealth without partiality, (laughs) it's never worked. There's always exploitation and abuse. But when God says justice will be brought to the nations, he expects us to take his word seriously because behold my servant. 
Just because we don't have the political will or capacity to achieve much more than we are now doesn't mean Yahweh's servant doesn't. And we see other important characteristics of this servant, verses 2 and 3, which particularly relate to the manner in which he will bring this justice by showing how he won't do it. So verses 2 and 3, he's not someone who shouts and points toward himself. That would be a change in politics, wouldn't it? This isn't the typical arrogant way of human leadership. He doesn't come with spin and propaganda or with military might. In fact, quite contrary, he will identify with the weak and fragile. A burning wick he won't snuff out. He will somehow share in the suffering of others, not live above it. He will truthfully bring forth justice. Truth and faithfulness will actually triumph in the hands of this servant. And verse 4 he won't cease or be discouraged until this incredible goal is achieved. About a year ago, I was ready to quit just because I was being abused too much for our position on COVID. Look at this servant. He will not cease or be discouraged till he brings justice to the nations. And later on in Isaiah, you'll see the sort of flack he will get to achieve that. They'll pull out his beard. He will bear others' iniquities. And verse 4, he won't, he will persevere. So clearly this is not Israel at this point because they are a completely discouraged, despairing servant of Yahweh and have failed to demonstrate the justness of Yahweh's law and not really caused others to seek for his, their God and his just rule. There's a sense in which this is exactly what humanity has been waiting for. But now in verses 5 to 7, we see that Yahweh addresses the servant directly. So this is God speaking to the servant, and we're invited to listen. And again, there's this sense here that this person is to perform the functions of Israel. but he will need to save Israel from the very things as well as the Gentiles. So the God who made all things and gives people life says to this servant, your job is to represent me in all righteousness, to represent me for who I am exactly, 
and be the light for the nations and in yourself be a means of covenant to all peoples. To open the eyes of the blind, release people from their slavery, so to fulfil the purpose of Israel, but at the same time save Israel from their failure. So verses 8 and 9, God addresses Israel again and explains further the necessity of the coming of this servant. God's commitment to establish his own reputation and glory will not be hindered by Israel's failure. Absorb that. We're the new Israel. Look at the church as a representation of our great God and say, tell me honestly that you think we're doing it well. (laughs) But God's commitment is that his own reputation and glory will not be hindered by Israel's failure. Why? Behold my servant. He must and will therefore achieve what he said through them and this servant will be the substance of recovering his glory from the prevalent idolatry. This servant is necessary because he's some sort of final answer to people wrongly attributing God's actions to idols or to randomness or to anything but Yahweh, the God of Jacob. Also, verse 8, we see that just as Yahweh established his name in the original Exodus, he will re-establish it again in this second or new Exodus. And we see this in verse 9, that unlike idols, God is again telling us in advance to expect this. Expect this servant. Expect this servant to come, and when he does, he will do certain things. And these things will be expanded on in the next three servant songs uh, throughout these chapters. Now, verse 9 is one of those phrases that people like to cross-stitch and hang on the wall, isn't it? That the former things have passed away and new things are coming. But to read the Bible well, this must be understood in context. This is not describing an ongoing principle that God will continually do new things In this context, it's saying it's talking about the former exodus and all that that achieved and all that surrounded that event. The new thing God is doing is a much bigger, glorious exodus. And fundamentally, this exodus 
will be inseparably connected to Yahweh's servant. So what should we expect the new thing God to do? He should send this servant to achieve all that's being promised here. Then verses 10 to 17, as if in response to this servant, a song of praise occurs. And the emphasis is on what Yahweh can do and will do, which is something, of course, that all genuine praise is motivated by. See, we don't praise for no reason. But the other emphasis in this song is on what he can do in contrast to idols, which do nothing. See, what this is saying is God will not do nothing while idols or randomness or humanity take the glory that is his. You can't rob God of his glory. He continues to act in such a way that he will recover his his glory from idols by displaying his servant. So verses 10 to 12, the whole world ought to give praise for this servant because verses 13 to 16, Yahweh is going to act with incredible zeal to achieve his intentions by this servant. That's good, isn't it? Because we lack zeal a lot of the time. (laughs) If it was up to our level of zeal for God's purposes to be achieved, there'd be a highly doubtful outcome. But Yahweh's own zeal will achieve this. He will make sure this happens. And the language of these Our verses very much feeds the new Exodus theme. So there's language like God acting against all that opposes him, uh, levelling the wilderness to make a way, bringing judgement on idolaters. Now some people find verses like 13 disturbing and difficult to understand how this is a description Description of God as a mighty warrior shouting as he goes to battle. But we need to reflect on this, don't we? How can we live in a just world if injustice is not completely destroyed? And verse 16 particularly, I will lead the blind in ways that they are ignorant of. He turns the darkness of idolatry into the light of the glory of the true and living God. And this is described here as fundamental to what God does and his purposes in the world. Because verse 17, it is utterly shameful to attribute and to trust in gods of the human imagination things that properly belong to God. To believe constructs of the universe that 
don't accord with reality. See, atheists may believe we live in a world without God, but that's a make-believe world. That's not the real universe. The universe displays God's glory. He won't allow forever to be robbed of that glory. But as you will see next time, as sinners, we are drawn to these alternative explanations. You are deceived if you think you have no love for idols. For your own preferred version of reality, and usually it will have you somewhere near the centre. The answer... Behold my servant. And so important is this to God's purpose that he absolutely makes sure we understand that ultimately this servant is Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Now at the very start of Mark's Gospel, which I'd invite you to read later, after this is about Jesus' baptism, where John is proclaiming in the he's the voice in the wilderness, proclaiming comfort to God's people. And at the baptism, the heavens open, a voice says, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I am delighted. Mark's Gospel, the A major theme, if not the major theme, is that this new exodus has come. This servant has arrived. So John is the messenger in the wilderness, if you remember, back to Isaiah 40. While he is baptising, the heavens are torn open, Isaiah 64. And a voice from heaven, book of Exodus, speaks, quotes from various parts of the Old Testament, including Isaiah 42. What's the job description of Jesus? To be the Davidic king of Psalm 2, you are my son, to be the faithful suffering servant of Isaiah. With you, I am delighted. The spirit who has come upon Jesus at his baptism then drives him into the wilderness as Israel were centuries before in the original Exodus. And throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus will demonstrate himself to be the true son not a failed son. The true servant, not a failed servant. And climactically, he takes the cup of God's wrath against sin by dying on a cross. Isaiah 51, Isaiah 53. To demonstrate the failure of idols and this human default setting to love idols... 
true Israel has been reduced to a remnant of one person. The servant of Yahweh who encapsulates all that Israel was called to be but failed to be. A light to the nations, a covenant for the people. So too for us as we live in this time and place with increasing uh, diversity in interpretation of the world and ideological preferences and political claims as we seek to live in our community and interpret our place in the world, raise our families, set our priorities. Or we're probably struggling under the weight of our own corruption and mortality. Whatever our situation, God's priority for us in this word today is emphatically... Behold my servant, in whose faithful and truthful hands justice will be brought to the nations, light to those in darkness, and release for captives to sin. When Jesus was here, he opened the eyes of the physically blind so that we could understand that he can deliver us from our far greater blindness. God has gone to great efforts to make sure that when this servant comes, we see his glory and listen to him. Our problems as human beings are not primarily political, economic, psychological They are spiritual. Idolatry, to use modern language, is a worship disorder. We love stupid and vain things. And the answer is that to cease being blind, dumb and deaf and see God's glory ultimately expressed in his son, a.k.a the suffering servant. Let me pray for us. (laughs) Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge ourselves to be as Israel before your son, that by nature we are dumb, blind and deaf, that we attribute your glory to false things, Uh, that we fail to grasp all that you are and what you've done. Uh, We thank you, though, that you have fully expressed yourself in your son. And uh, we pray that this morning you would help us to see with clarity the concerns of Isaiah and that you would cause us to continue to abandon our idols and our love of vain things and to behold your servant. Uh, We thank you that in Jesus we have the light and freedom that you have turned us from the shame of idolatry and ignorant perspectives on this world. We pray now that as you would help us to once again look to your servant
that you would cause his reputation to be established in the confusion of our culture. Help us to be public and faithful to the faithful one and to see true greatness in serving. We thank you that you do not forsake your own word or glory and will accomplish your purposes. May we be those found faithful on that great day when everyone's deeds are weighed. And we pray for the sake of his name. Amen.